This is a crowd podcast. So why are you talking to me? I think it's going to create a lot of people starting to look over their shoulder that have done things that they maybe they thought they got away with. And I also think it's going to make people that are in the process of doing things, bad, bad things, stop for a minute and go, that big crazy son of a bitch with those guys, what if they call him? And then there's going to be people that are going to be like, man, that guy comes, I'm just going to kill him. Well, I have been shot, I have been stabbed, you know, I have been beaten, and I'm still here. This time on American Vigilante. A pretty incredible situation that I'd honestly never had come across before. I was approached by a, a member of the Mexican Mafia. I suppose the big question in all of this, and you're no doubt thinking what I'm thinking, is, is Casey making all of this up? You know, when I started all this, it never meant to become what it's become. Is he a master storyteller? I buried both my thumbs into his eye sockets and he screamed so bad. It sounded like somebody was tearing his guts out. Is he someone who has spent years creating this fantastical alter ego? I'm a monster hunter. Can this really be true? Did he really go on all these missions? Rescue all these people? Really? My children are very well trained in hand-to-hand combat, edged weapons and handguns and rifles. There were a few niggles when he's told me, oh, I was six hours from this and then I arrived at 9am and I thought, well, what, you left at 3am? How did you know where someone was at 3am? Or could I recall (laughs) to the exact moment? Things that happened a decade ago? Of course not. And yet he can remember with vivid precision the type of fabric that a bag was made out of, a meal somebody ate. If he's a fantasist, he's an incredible one. I kicked that door as hard as I've ever kicked anything in my life. And I heard the distinctive sound at that very second of a 45. Boom, 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 boom. To have created these entire worlds down to such detail. And I'll tell you, some of these stories he's told me a couple of times over, a few weeks apart, and the details remain the same. And yet there are niggles. Is he so deep in this world that he has created it down to the very last blade of grass? Or is this the way his mind works? I don't know if I'll ever find out, but I really want to keep talking to him. I'm Sam Walker. And this is American Vigilante, episode five, Knock Knock. So Sam, just so you know, uh, you actually know more about my life right now than my own family. (laughs) Which I kind of don't know how to take. (laughs) I know, it's weird. It's strange for me. Yeah. I mean, I, I spent my entire life covering that stuff and it was really hard for me really was. I mean, to start talking to somebody like you that's a stranger, you know, I don't know you, I don't know anything about you, and here I am spewing my guts to you, and yeah, it's never been my deal. I I don't have any issues talking to you. What is it like saying all of this out loud over such a short, intensive period? Violating. (laughs) I mean, the thing is, is I've made a commitment to do this for many reasons, But to give you an idea of how close this stuff has been kept to the vest, there are team members that are going to hear these stories and they're going to be like, oh, fuck, that's the one you wouldn't tell me about. Because if you're not on a job, you don't get to know about the job. The lines that I'm stepping over here with you are huge lines because they were part of the code. And and all the stuff that I'm doing now, this this was voted on. I'm not just free range said, you know, hey, I'm Casey and I'm going to go do what I want to do. It wasn't like that. This was a a conscious decision by the team. You know, I continue to be perplexed by Casey. His stories, of course, but even while recording, his relationship with phones. Oh, let me turn that off. I'm sorry. It seems like they're the bane of his life. The thing is, is that right whenever we were dealing with those three, they were firing guns. 
Yeah, sorry about that. And he said this, didn't he? In The Marine's Wife, our last episode. Those numbers aren't on a mobile phone, they're in my head. Every one of them. Every contact number I have, I dial. And so many of his stories include things like, well, if you've hired me, you're only to call me if you've got essential information. And even then, he'll say that you must go and buy a cell phone and use it only once. Anything electronic can be compromised. You put something on text, it's forever. There's centers in the United States that record every conversation. So the only way to truly move without being detected is to not carry electronics with you. But phones clearly are also the lifeblood of his work. Say again, I'm sorry, I was receiving a message I had to read. Because when people need him, they got to call him. You know, there's things that happen that you're going to have to hold on a second. Okay, I have to take this call. Casey's latest jaw-dropping story for us starts when he gets a call that he never expects from someone in the Mexican mafia that he calls Ray. And at first, of course, I thought maybe it was a setup. Um, you know, I, uh, I was trying to think if I had done anything that had crossed them in any way. You know, if I had taken any of their money at a time or raided one of their houses. But I, I'd never done anything like that. Never done anything that would make them be retaliatory toward me. So I got hold of Murphy and I got hold of Droppy. I said, look, I'm going to go and meet this person. One way or another, this needs to be dealt with because uh, I said, if it's a setup, we need to end it. I said, and if it's something happens to me, I need you guys to, to follow up on this. Well, both of them immediately are like, well, you're not going to go do this alone. So I went ahead and set up the meet. And I've got to say that for the first time, I was truly shocked. So this guy is a, a gang member in the Mexican mafia, and he's, he's high up the food chain. In this area where he lives, there's no bad activities allowed. And I mean, it's a big area. There's no drugs allowed. Nothing that he can control is allowed in these areas because his family lives there, right? I, of course, had to follow up on this stuff. And, well, I'm meeting with this person, and I'm meeting them at a McDonald's. (laughs) I am. I, I wanted to make sure it was very public. Not that they care, but I did. And I had to have a place where my guys could be easily accessible we're talking and i i'm i'm just in awe that he wants me to help him <laughs> i'm like man you've you know you've got <laughs> bigger wheels than i do you know what what are you asking for me for and he goes well he said our methods are are rather extreme he said i don't want my neighbors being hurt i don't want the community being hurt i don't want my children being hurt And I told him, I'm like, well, look, I said, I I don't do work for drug dealers. I don't take out rival gangs. That's not our thing. And he looked me straight in the eye and he goes, check this out. His son goes to school in a local school. And what's happened is a rival gang has moved into the area and set up a drug house less than two blocks from his son's school. Also directly across from a type of retirement community that's what got me and everything he told me was true everything the drug stuff in that area was extremely minimal I mean he his people didn't traffic in the area at all and anytime there was a problem in the area they they they'd threaten people and, and things wouldn't happen they kept that area safe it's crazy as it sounds they kept that area safe <laughs> okay and this was something that in order for him to have made it safe it would have been a mess. They, they would have had to go in the way they go in, guns blazing, and it would have been bad. And is this in Mexico or is this in the States? I won't disclose the location. I was just wondering whether the Mexican mafia operate within the United States. You can, they do. They do. Okay. They operate in the United States. Right. Hell, everything does. Russian mafia does. The Asian mafia does. I mean, you know, you got Tong in Seattle. I mean, there's, <laughs> there's, they're all here. So... I told him I'd take the job and uh, told him how much we were going to charge him. And I didn't charge him the flat rate. I gave him a dollar amount. I said, this is how much you're going to pay me. And he just said, no problem. Was it a lot of money? Yeah, it was a good chunk of change. It was a really good chunk of change. And there was a lot of conditions that I, I gave to this man on top that I'm not telling you about. A lot of conditions. 
I told him we also keep any assets that we take from the place. I said, if there's any drugs in the place, I said, it doesn't go to you. I said, we're going to dispense with it. And that's one thing. They won't break an agreement with you. So this conditions came with a lot of teeth. We set up surveillance on the house for two days, just checking and real heavy volume of traffic. Harleys and bikes coming in and out of there constantly. Fancy cars on 22-inch wheels in an area these vehicles just didn't belong. And I was like, holy shit. I mean, this isn't like some guy dealing little eighth grams of whatever you deal. This is somebody moving some stuff. It was a tough place to get into. The area was completely congested with housing. The only real access point we had, there was a house that had a huge yard, it was landscaped, didn't have any trees or shrubs around the perimeter. But around the house, there was no dog, and thank God there was no fence around it. Then we can get over into the, the ditch line, and we would be able to go down this ditch because it was three to four feet deep, and to get to where the house was. And that would protect us from anybody driving by, couldn't see us, and it would, you know, take care of a, an ingress and egress where we'd get in and out. Well, that was for shit. You know, the best laid plans in the world. <laughs> Let me tell you, it doesn't matter. So here we are trying to get in there, and he had to get across this big open area. And you got to understand, there's streets, a main thoroughfare going down one side another. So it's, it's open. This whole area is open. I'm pretty good at moving, even though I'm big and not being seen. I managed to crawl across that whole damn yard, my great big ass, not be seen, took my time. I mean, it took me probably about 45 minutes to move because I had to move slowly so I looked just like, you know, a rock, a blob, something. If I had to move too fast, movement catches the eye. So I get clear across and I'm in a big shrub that's next to the, the good guy house. Now from this house to the bad guy's house is still another half a block. Well... <laughs> One of my guys is crawling across. In fact, I think it was Murphy. <laughs> His profile crawling doesn't look like mine. Mine looks like a maybe a rock moving across. His looks like a giant snake or something. <laughs> and he got spotted. You know, his ass was sticking in the air at the wrong time. Somebody's looking out of the house. I don't remember exactly what happened. <laughs> but all of a sudden, we hear, what the hell are you doing out there? And the thing is, is I told the guys, I was like, look, if anything happens, don't try to hide. You're in the open. I said, stand up like you're a bad guy and just walk away. Don't run, walk. And that's what he did. We were in an area that was <laughs> swarmed with people that were not on our side. And uh, putting yourself in those positions, you have to blend with the environment any way you can. And uh, in that area, in those situations, there are a lot of bad guys. So if you are all of a sudden taking off running down a road and you're obviously not recognizable as one of their crew, then you stand out. So, you know, when I told him to stand up like a bad guy, that meant stand up like you were one of the bad guys and just walk away. And it works. So him and Droppy went and got into the vehicle that was still another half mile away from that location. They just walked down the road and whatever and walked away. Well, now here I am. I'm stuck. I'm like, you fucker, right? Now I've got to leave. And so here I was, I had, to, <laughs> I had to get the hell out of there. So I did a lot of ditch line crawling and managed to get out. I had to go to a wooded area that was farther down the road about a mile. And then I was able to contact them and we'd left the radio in a certain area that we could be picked up because we don't carry electronics on us when we're working. Don't take this the wrong way, but judging by the amount of crawling that you're doing here, I'm assuming this story was some time ago. What were you like physically in your peak? A lot of this is going to be hard to digest, but in my peak condition, you know, I pissed napalm, fucked nuclear waste, and ate Constantino wire. I was a fucking badass. And that's a line out of a Clint Eastwood movie, but it fucking fit. I weighed uh, 267 pounds. I could run a 40-yard dash in 4.7 seconds. I could run a mile in my boots on uneven terrain in 4 minutes and 59 seconds. I could run 3 miles in 16 minutes and 42 seconds. I could do 148 push-ups, and that's with somebody laying in front of me with their hand underneath me in 2 minutes. I was working out one time at a gym, and there was some big steroid yoked-up freak there, and 
And this guy had watched me work out for a couple weeks, and he was shooting off his mouth. He's like, oh, yeah, that pussy over there, you know, I never see him go heavy. He's just big and blah, blah, blah. And, and I was like, I tell you what, why don't you put your money where your mouth is? He goes, what you got? I said, 50 bucks. I said, I'll, I'll put up what you got on your bar right there. And he started laughing. He had like 535 pounds sitting on that bar. So I went over there, and I grabbed it, and I said, give me your money. He set the money up there on the thing, and I picked it up, and I ripped it three times. So I don't know what my max is, but I do know that I put up 535 pounds three times at the end of a chest workout one time. So if that was then, what sort of shape would you say you're in now? So I'm nowhere near as as fast as I used to be, but I've learned to read situations better, read people better, and respond quicker to certain situations because I know that I don't have the time or efficiency as I did before. So in a nutshell, I've gotten a lot fucking meaner as I've gotten older. Right, back to the story. Three or so days after one of the team was spotted crossing that lawn, they decide to have another crack at it. Well, this time Droppy wanted to go first. He didn't make it. He didn't make it a third of the way across. <laughs> that guy must have been watching his backyard like a hawk because all of a sudden he's like, what the hell are you doing out there? And the, the outside lights came on this time and the guy's out there with a flashlight and Droppy's like, oh, he gets up, he walks off. And me and Murphy are laughing our asses off. We're like, oh yeah, you're a real sneaky fucker. You didn't even make it halfway. You know, he's like, fuck you guys. So, you know, it's funny, but it's not funny, right? Being spotted yet again, KC decides to leave it another week before what will probably be their last chance of getting into that drug house. We gave him another week because I wanted the area to calm down. I knew that guy was going to, you know, probably call the police and the police were going to be patrolling the area. So we'd still been watching the place and we knew that there was, you know, people coming in and out constantly, but there was one night a week. There was no traffic. It's like, I don't know if they were getting resupplied. I don't know, but there was no people coming in and out. Pulled Murphy and Droppy aside and I, I told him, I said, look, I said, we're going to drive right up this house, kick the door in, go in there and fuck everybody up. <laughs> and then we're going to be gone. And they're both looking at me like I'm stupid. I said, it's the last thing they'll expect. I said, it's the only way we're going to get in there. <laughs> and Murphy's like, I'm game. And Droppy's like, fuck it. Sounds good to me. Stand by for the drug house raid. Casey gets dark. And for the first time, I get really frustrated with him. All that after this break. Hello there, I am Tom Fordyce and I'm one of the producers on American Vigilante. I do hope you're enjoying the series. Now, if you need a break from KC and you're feeling peckish, why not try Factors No Prep No Mess Meals? They're a great way to meet your wellness goals in time for the summer, if it ever arrives, with chef-crafted meals like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus and Keto. Factor always makes fresh meals, never frozen. They're dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. And they taste really good. They've got loads of options from breakfast to dessert. There are 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week. Treat yourself to restaurant quality dishes with premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp and blackened salmon. But all without prep and the cleaning up. Head to factormeals.com slash American50 and use code American50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code American50 at factormeals.com slash American50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Something is creeping in. Don't follow it down. Let me introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. The type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy. 
And you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. She stole from my son, who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Amy. And hi, Hi, True Crime Crime fans. fans. We're the co-hosts of She Goes by Jane. Every week, we'll be covering the story of a missing or unidentified woman in the United States. Stories you may have heard before. And ones whose stories didn't make it into the news. We've been covering these stories for a while. First in Amy's book of poetry, Doe. And then in Vanessa's documentary, She. But now we want to share them with you here on She Goes by Jane. And each week we'll be joined by a special guest who will read a poem in honor of the women we talk about. Can we say who? We can say who. We'll be joined by actresses like Coco Jones and Gabrielle Ruiz. And musicians like Stephanie Quayle and Kelly Moneymaker along with authors like Louise Penny and Catherine McKenzie. So check out She Goes by Jane wherever you get your podcasts, or check out Evergreen Podcasts and their true crime channel, Killer Podcasts. We can't wait to bring you these stories. So we return to the story Knock Knock, and Casey, Murph, and Troppy, who we haven't met before this, are preparing themselves to raid the drug house. So they all start putting on their bulletproof vests. Droppy pulls his out and he starts putting it on. Murph pulls his out. He's putting it on. He's like, hey, Casey, here's one for you. I'm like, I ain't wearing one. You know I ain't going to wear a vest. He goes, what do you mean you ain't going to wear a vest? I said, I ain't wearing no fucking vest. I said, slow me down too much. You know that. And he goes, well, fuck it. You ain't wearing one. I ain't wearing one. So he takes it off. <laughs> Droppy's like, I fucking ain't wearing one either. And he throws his off and all of a sudden Murphy goes, give me my vest. I'm putting it back on. <laughs> he puts his vest back on. So you don't like the vests? Well, the thing about bulletproof vests, in my opinion, is they're just not worth it. The reason is, is your standard bulletproof vest will only stop a handgun. Your 9mm, your 40 caliber, your 45, you know, your 357. But, you know, if somebody's using a AR-15, uh, an AK-47, any hunting rifle, it's going to punch right through a bulletproof vest. And if somebody's got a big caliber handgun and and shoots you multiple times with it, you know, the vest will stop the bullet from penetrating, but it won't stop the bullet from breaking your ribs, rupturing your liver, rupturing your spleen. But they protect your your organs, your vital organs. Some guys on my team, you know, choose to wear them, but they only choose to wear light, light light-duty ones. And then depending on what we're doing, there are some of them that, that will occasionally wear a vest that's got a big heavy trauma plate in the front. And the trauma plates are capable of stopping a thirty out six round, which is a you know that that's a heavy round that'll travel twelve hundred meters. And you know there are a lot of instances where bulletproof vests have saved people's lives, which which is great. But bulletproof vest doesn't protect your legs, you know your thighs. You got femoral arteries in them, you know your head. So me personally, uh, I never wear one. The weight of the bulletproof vest slows me down. It also puts my equipment. In, in different positions so that it's not as accessible. They slow down my ability to draw a weapon quicker, to access reloads, to do a lot of things because they put them in unnatural positions on your body because of the thickness of the vest. So anyway, I says, Droppy, I said, I need you to pull rear. I said, you're going to stay outside. I said, I need you to handle anything that happens outside. No matter what happens in there, I said, you don't come in. I said, I can't have a surprise. And he's like, okay, good. So we all got ready, and we drove down the road just like normal. We'd made one pass first. We went around the far side, come the opposite direction, made a complete pass, went back up. We pulled right up the house. There was nobody outside. Shut the lights off on the vehicle, got out, did not close the doors. That's the biggest key right there. You hear a bunch of doors slam. I don't care who you are. You know, you, somebody pulls up to your house. What's the first thing you hear? It's not the car pulling up. It's thump, 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 right? I stepped out of the car and uh, was already running toward the door. Murphy is right behind me. Hannah's on my shoulder. I don't know what Droppy did. Droppy was doing whatever he was supposed to do, but he's on his own. I didn't even slow down. I kicked that door as hard as I've ever kicked anything in my life. And... <laughs> The funniest thing happened that I'd ever had happen, because I'd never had this one happen. 
The door actually came off the latch. The hinges broke and the door tumbled across in the air and hit the far side of the room. Murphy started laughing. (laughs) I didn't even slow down. I couldn't. I had a full head of steam. I ran straight through the door. There was a couch in front of me. There was a wall with a big mirror on it. There was a big chair to my left. I bounced off the couch on my shoulder and had my weapon pointed toward the kitchen. And I heard the distinctive sound at that very second of a 45. Boom, 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 boom. Couldn't believe I didn't get shot. Murph couldn't believe he didn't get shot. <laughs> we see flames <laughs> shooting through the doorway of the kitchen. He's still emptying the gun at the door. We're not even there. And Murphy is still laughing. And uh, he's kind of on top of me. And I'm like, you hit? He goes, no. And I'm like, good. I said, clear the hall. So he cleared back rooms and hallway and there was nobody back there. He came back out and I mean, he did this fast. And I mean fast. From the kitchen, we heard like three or four voices. So I knew there was three or four people in there. And as I'm on this side of the wall, Murph's right behind me and I'm peeping, I'm peeping. And they're kind of in the very back. I can see the tail of a motorcycle. It ended up being a GSXR, I think 1100. And the guy's standing there. I could see his hands and the gun, and his hands are shaking. And I hear him, reload that thing, reload that thing. And I'm like, you got two seconds to come out. I said, I'm going to kill you. And the guy's shaking, and I said, come out right now. He comes out. I said, drop the weapon. And he drops it on the floor. I said, tell your buddy to come out with you. And he had two of his, two of his guys came out with him. And just then, Droppy comes running in through the door. And he's like... Holy shit, man. He goes, that was the coolest thing I've ever seen. I'll follow you to hell. And I'm like, get the fuck outside. So he's like, that's so cool. And Murph's all smiling still, you know, and he runs back outside. Now, this front guy that came out is a freaking monster. I'm not kidding you. He was was easily as tall as Murphy. Thick, dark hair. Big, strong, lean guy. And he was the boss. He's like, you got any fucking idea who I am? And I'm like, well, but how are you shaking? I said, it doesn't seem like you're too much anything of a, a big guy to me. And his guys are behind him, but he's trying to save face. And I says, take your clothes off right now. He looks at me and says, what? I said, take your clothes off. So this guy's shaking and his hands are in the air. And I made that guy take his clothes off right in front of me. And he pissed himself right there. He's pissing all over the floor. And I said, you turn around. I said, I'm going to have some of that sweet ass, buddy. And he was shaking and scared. And he's like, please don't kill me. Please don't kill me. And his guys are looking at him. And they're glaring at me. And he turned around. And I said, grab hold of that table. And everybody's like smiling except his guys. And I put my hand on his back. And I said, if I ever see you again. I said, you're going to be mine the rest of your life. I said, do you understand me? And he was like, yeah, yeah. And I said, now turn around. He turned around. I said, give me that necklace. He takes his necklace off and he hands it to me and I put it on right in front of him. I said, give me your watch. He hands me his watch and now he's standing there completely naked in front of me. Completely humiliated. And I told him, I says, tomorrow when the light hits this place, I said, there better not be any sign of you. I said, and I better not ever hear you being around here again. What was it about him that triggered you so much? Because the way you behaved with him, I haven't heard you talk like that. I haven't heard about you behaving in that way with somebody else. People that run gangs thrive on fear within their own entities. They call it respect but it's not respect. They're the leader because they're feared. They know that if they cross that person, they're going to get killed, and not just them. They'll kill their families. They'll kill their kids, their wives, their grandparents. They're ruthless. So the only way to earn what they call respect is to let them know what you're capable of. So I terrified him, and he was, a very, he was the guy that opened up on us, me and Murph, through the door. You know, it was, what, 16 or 17 rounds out of a 45? He, that's one of the things he was saying whenever he was shaking. He goes, I can't believe you just ran through the hail of bullets and then came at me. He goes, I've never seen anything like that in my life. 
So I struck fear in that man's heart by coming into his home, into his business, you know, made him take his clothes off in front of his big, tough lieutenants. And that night he thought I was going to have sex with him right there in front of all those people. He really did. You know, made him give me his jewelry, told him that I was going to be his boyfriend and let him know very clearly that there was nothing he could do about it. Yeah, I humiliated him. That's all they understand is pure dominance. These animals. Mm. Did you have any concerns of the fact there was gunfire in a residential neighborhood that the police would be there within minutes? There was no sign of them that night at all? Oh, no, the sirens were coming when I left, believe me. <laughs> so Murphy's like, dibs on the bike. <laughs> and I'm like, it's yours. So he goes and hops on his bike, and I mean, he's in the kitchen facing a door, and he's like, rama, rama, and he hops on it. And out he goes outside, and I last see him, he's riding a wheelie away. And I hear a Harley fire up, and it's droppy. And Droppy's like, dibs on the Harley. And I'm like, you fuckers. And off he goes in the Harley. I went and got in the car and left. And uh, that drug house was vacated the next day. Uh, The drugs that we found there, uh, I ended up taking with us. Uh, It was methamphetamine and heroin. And there were very large packs of it. And we ended up burning in a burn barrel with a bunch of tires and toxic crap that was really nasty. We did find a, a chunk of money there. And, uh... We found out that the Harley actually was stolen a few states away from a man. Uh, It was one of the Mongols, actually. So we did return the bike to him. And the gentleman that I uh, humiliated so badly quit drugs completely. Went on to have a very good professional career (laughs) and has a great job now. It scared him so bad, it scared him straight that night. That was it. They shut the drug house down. And uh, to this day, that entire community is a much safer place. We created a ripple that will never go away because they know that there's somebody out there that will come and deal with their shit. Do you always check up on the people that you've had altercations with further down the road? Mm, No. Um, I did this time because... Remember, I told you that I'd made an agreement with Ray and that that agreement had to be abided by. So that community became my personal pet project for the rest of my life. What's the difference between that gang leader you humiliated and the evil things that he'd done and Ray? Well, I don't know. I mean, you know, is there a difference? I don't know. I've never seen any of Ray's work. I don't know where Ray's network is. I don't. I got no clue. I'm wondering, though, how that sits with your moral code, the fact that you are on the payroll, even for a short period, of somebody who clearly has done a lot of the things that in another job you'd be stopping. Uh, We're going to stop there. I was on the payroll of a father. Well, how do you know the guy you humiliated also wasn't a father? Well, the guy humiliated was a piece of shit. Ray at that point when he contacted me, was a father. He didn't have to tell me he was part of the Mexican Mafia. He, he could have just, I mean, I was, I was being referred to him. I, I would have done this for him no matter what. Now, do I condone what he does or used to do? Hell no, I don't. But do I know exactly what he did? No, I've got an idea. But Ray'd never come across my radar. And I can tell you this, by doing what we did that night, I saved cops' lives. Because it would have been a matter of time. That place would have got bigger and bigger. And these people were very well connected. There would have been a time sooner or later that something would have happened. And some cop or cops would have either had to respond to something and got killed or shot. Or they themselves would have pulled one of these guys over that had too much drugs with them. And maybe a delivery or something. And they would have got killed. So we did a shitload of good that night. Do you think there should be more people like you or fewer people like you around? I think there should be more. So how do you... There's a lot of people like me around. There are. But... I think by you saying like me or people, I think you mean, and I could be wrong, I think you mean people that think the way I do, not necessarily do what I do. 
No, I'm thinking about the sort of person who who feels so morally outraged by what they see happening, by what they perceive to be, and they could be completely right, a complete failure in the law, complete failure of the justice system. They see, as you have said to me, bad things happening to good people, families being devastated, and they believe it is their job, their right, their role to go and sort that out. Now, when you think that, Casey, you have got decades of military training. You've got decades of experience. You are an intelligent man. One thing uh, I... Hold on a second. I'm going to stop you right here. I don't care about all that, you know? But it's super important Way if back, you're going... No, no, no. We're going to go. We're going to go back in time here. Okay. You know, there was a time when there was no training in anything and people just took care of their own shit. They took care of the business. I mean, right now you've got criminals, murderers, rapists, burglars being dumped out of prisons. And in jails, okay, that's, the jails are crowded. That's the one side of it. The other side of it is when a bunch of vigilantes in the UK not too long ago decided they were sick of the justice system, not going hard enough on paedophiles. And they went round and they confronted and they beat up and they hurt and they delivered whatever you want to call it, a bunch of paedophiles, except they started to hit the houses of paediatricians. Kids, doctors, well, you know, because they, no, back. no, no, hang on a minute, because they didn't have the intelligence to actually think through and they didn't have that moral code in order to go and do that job correctly. And the fact is, if you're saying, I think there should be more people like me around, you are going to get so many mistakes. You are going to get people's lives ruined. You say you will never enter someone's house unless you're convinced they're the you're bad guy. You're comparing apples and oranges. I'm not. You said people like me. If they're like me, they're going to be well thought. There's a big difference. There is so a big you're now, difference. You're now saying people like me, and then you're comparing me to a bunch of people that ran rampant being idiots. That's that's not fair. No, you know what I am trying to say to I you. I know what you're trying I, to say, but I, what I'm saying is accurate. But you're picking up the wrong bits. You're picking up the wrong bits of me. You know what I'm trying to say is if you call to arms, let's take back our country, let's fight the bad guys ourselves because we don't trust in the law. It's not that. It's not that. There's too many. The point I'm trying to make is there's too many. You know, there's a saying in the U.S. When seconds count, law enforcement is minutes away. Cops can't be everywhere. It's impossible. And then because of protocol, they have to take time to write reports. They got to take time to do things. I understand It's this. impossible. So what's the alternative? Because most people aren't like you, Casey. You need people like me that are willing to help out law enforcement. You think there's enough people off. like you who are as smart as you, trained as you, have as strong as moral code as you? You have no idea how many military people there are that are just like me that want nothing more than to be turned loose. Because I'll tell you what, you want to see shit get cleaned up quick? You turn the dogs loose. And I'll tell you what, you'll find out how quickly everything toes the line. Because they're not going to be the people that go breaking into innocent people's homes. They're not going to be. There are the going to be a bunch of those out. as well, don't you think? Those people are just going to stay at home and go, do you know what? I've thought about it. I don't have the intelligence to track this person down. I don't have the intelligence to do the due diligence. I don't really have the proper moral code. I tell you what, I'll stay at home and let KC handle it. Or are they going to go, he did it. I can do it. And they're well, going to do that. You know, that goes back to being 18 again, doesn't it? People are accountable for their actions. I'm not justifying or condoning anything. I'm just talking about what I have done. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've backed up law enforcement. Hell, I come upon a cop one time, you know, the, a guy was loose in a, in a building with an AK-47 and hostages, and he had no backup coming. He was shitting himself. And I pulled right up, and I told him straight, I'm like, you want me to help you out, I'll help you out. And he goes, buddy, he goes, I'll take all the help I can get. And when I opened up my rig and started pulling crap out, he's like, holy shit. <laughs> and I said, I'll secure the back, don't let anybody come back there. I, I I just a few years ago, you know, driving down the freeway, a state trooper was taking down a car. Four guys started getting out of the car. I pulled up sideways, come out with a gun. I said, trooper, you need backup? He says, yes, sir, I do. He didn't ask me who I was or nothing because he knew that he was getting quickly put in a position where he was in bad shape. You know, all it takes for the forces of evil to prevail is for one good man to do nothing. And that's a fact. You know, I don't know where you live, Sam, but let's say in your area there's somebody running around and 
burning down houses and robbing people and beating them in the streets. And all of a sudden, you've got somebody that just gets fed up. They live there in that area. And they're like, you know what? I'm going to go do something about this because there ain't no cops around. There ain't nobody else doing nothing. What am I going to do? Do you wait until they come into your house? Fuck that. The U.S. all the time goes to other countries and kicks the shit out of people because sooner or later, they're going to come here and do it if we don't. So do you wait when somebody's running around your neighborhood shooting and burning until it comes to your house or do you go out and deal with it? If you take a kind of long view of society and how societies are structured, there's a whole school of thought and true belief system that in fact, in order for a society to function, then actually the state needs to have the monopoly on violence, the right to punish. Because if everyone has the right to punish and the accountability in that I'm an adult, I'm going to do this because this is my moral code, then society breaks down. What do so you, you think that if somebody comes into your house... I'm No, I'm not thinking anything. No, I'm no, telling, no, no, I'm no. Telling you hold you. on. You just opened this can and now you're going to eat it. Oh, no, no, no. So you I am think saying that if somebody you, breaks into yeah. your house and attacks your children and your husband, that you don't have a right to get a gun and shoot that person dead. Because then you're taking the law into your own hands. And that's not just. The police should handle it. Is that what you're telling me? No, I'm not. I'm not telling you anything. I'm not saying what I okay. believe. I'm not now saying what I'm, I believe. I'm telling you I'm just, I'm a theory. Just trying okay. To, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because now, now let's extend that out. There's a store a block away. You've known the people for 15 years. And you happen to have your handgun with you. And you see a guy come in there. And you see him shoot one of those people. And he's robbing that store. And you're already in there or close to there. Do you just walk away and call the police? see so if people step up instead of stepping away this country becomes a lot safer place for our cops for our children and for our mothers but the thought of regular people going out with deadly weapons in their hands to make a point when you grow up with them it's normal you grow up with guns in your hands hunting and fishing a gun is it's just like a pipe wrench or a shovel. It's just a tool. It's really not. Yes, it I is. Can't kill, I can't kill 15 people from one space with a pipe, whatever you said. <laughs> yes, you could. Oh, yeah, you give me a shovel, I'll be a nasty person. Let me tell no, you. No, you could. You said that your team members are going to hear this and say, holy shit, Casey, that was the one you didn't tell me about. But what about when your daughters listen do you feel differently about that how does that feel in your gut knowing that your daughters are going to listen to this well i told them that when this podcast finally started getting a, a toehold they're going to hear some things about their father that they may not like and may not approve of and that some people might even talk bad and my daughter looked at me and goes papa i'm not stupid <laughs> And that was my youngest. <laughs> and I go, what do you mean? And she goes, Papa, come on. She goes, there's times we see articles in a paper or hear people talking about things, and it just happens to be the same dates where you just happen to not be around. She's like, Papa, we're not stupid. When we first started talking, we were talking about your family, and we were talking about your sister, and you said that when you first started talking to your sister about what you did, I think the exact phrase you used was she said, that's horseshit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is. And she's a, she's a, I can tell you this, she's incredibly refined and doesn't swear. <laughs> there are going to be people listening to this who don't believe you. You think maybe you are making it all up. What do you say to that? I don't care. People are going to believe what they're going to believe and they're not going to believe what they're not going to believe. And I don't care. I know what I've done. I didn't need anybody's approval when I did it and I don't need it now. I'm completely happy by myself and so is my team knowing that the good that we did next time on American Vigilante this was a, uh, a woman that owned a, a major corporation and she's like KC a law enforcement agency wants to contract you well here I am a seven year old little boy that's been drilled into me by my father to protect my mom no matter what 
But I went running back to my room and I picked up my 22 off that gun rack and I'm not supposed to touch it without my dad's permission. And I walked back into that kitchen and I had a pointy right at my dad's belly. And I said, I'm gonna kill you, daddy. American Vigilante is a Crowd Network original. It's presented by me, Sam Walker. It's produced by Phil Brown and Steve Jones. The executive producer for Crowd is Mike Carr. Associate producer for Stowaway Entertainment is Jeff Singer. The music we used is from our partners, BMG Production Music. If you want another Crowd podcast to listen to, try Murder in House 2. It's the story of how a group of Marines killed 24 innocent civilians in the Haditha massacre and how the US government tried to cover it up. It's a 10-part series that took 15 years to make. It'll shock you, it'll make you think, and it will make you question everything you thought you knew about the Iraq war. Search for Murdering House 2 in your podcast app. Crowd Network, a place where you belong. This investigation is convened by Lieutenant General James T. Mattis, commanding officer. I want to tell you a story. May I call your first witness? Yes, sir. Close your eyes. Explosion goes off. Boom! We both yell, clear. 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 It's a story about a crime that shocked the world. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And a cover-up that reached into the highest levels of the United States military. Five, six, seven, possibly seven gunshots. It is also a story I recorded in secret. Evidence collected. Departing House 2 at 1555 due to a tactical situation which demands our departure. So join me, Michael Epstein, as I reveal the truth about the longest, most expensive criminal investigation in U.S. military history. Murder in House 2, a 10-part podcast series available right now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Ohio is a land of mystery, from missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface to strange phenomenon slicing through her skies. From myths that have evolved around historic events and people to the unsolved murders and disappearances that keep her communities wondering what happened. Find Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app and let's explore the inexplicable. OhioMysteries.com So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins, convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife, and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts, people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6000 cash, give us each 3000 we give you this. Uh-huh. You go home, and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done, and that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found. 3AM, the comedy horror podcast that holds weekly gatherings around the campfire. Let me tell you what you're going to get. You're going to hear stories about demonic possessions, prison stabbings, skinwalkers, glitches in the Matrix, cult leaders, missing 411, night marchers, Operation Paperclip, Mesopotamian devil worship, and so many monsters it'll give Kanye West a runaway for his money. Pop and meme culture also aren't off-topic. A camp where laughs and scares are constantly competing for first place. We're just a group of friends trying to bust each other's balls, find the best stories, and expand the circle in the process. 3AM, the comedy horror podcast, not for the faint or fragile of heart. Let's go. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events 
on our podcast, Disturbed Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. My name is Bill Huffman, and I am a former Cleveland News producer. And I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Mihaljevic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an Evergreen Podcasts, Killer Podcasts, and Slow Burn Media production. Subscribe today wherever you get your favorite shows. From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia, Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule, history so interesting, it's criminal.